Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March 17th, 2023, a Friday. It's going to be an exciting weekend if you happen to be in New Jersey. I'm in California. I'm not going to be able to go to this event. But um, this weekend, there is a, a Philip Roth Unbound Festival um, in New Jersey celebrating the great man's work. Um, and one of the panels, a particularly interesting one, uh, focuses on uh, who and why we have the right uh, um, as novelists to invent other people that the the panel is called what gives you the right and it's a conversation about representation imagination empathy and exploitation with some very distinguished uh, writers including uh, jean hanf Korolitz. um it's a conversation about, in many ways, uh, Roth's book, The Human Stain, which is a book about black and white identity and how they inevitably became or became muddled. It's all fiction, but of course, it's borne out in fact. Um, Jean Hamp Korolitz came on my show a couple of weeks ago to talk about it, uh, and we discussed who has the right to speak in the voices of men and women and blacks and Jews and everybody else in the world. Um, it's a very controversial issue. Who has the right to, uh, and I use a word carefully, appropriate other people's voices. Yesterday, had a conversation with a young English or Anglo-American novelist, Alice Wynne. She has a new book out. Uh, in, memor uh, in Memoriam, it's a book about the First World War, spoken in the voice of two young uh, Englishmen, gay Englishmen. Um, and I asked her, and she said she has the right to appropriate their voice if she does her research on them. But of course, who gives you the right is all about who we are as our culture, being white, black, Jewish, female, uh, Asian, whatever it is, is of course... The, itself a construction, at least I think in some ways, according to my guest today, Martin Puchner is a very distinguished Harvard professor. He's been on the show before and he has a new book out, came out last month in the US and two weeks ago in the UK, Culture, the story of us from cave art to K-pop. It's a, a book about the syncretic, the, the syncretic nature of culture and Martin, appropriately enough, as a Harvard professor is joining us from Munich, where he is spending his sabbatical. Martin, um, why did you do this book? It's quite controversial, and um, it, it could have got you in all sorts of trouble, which I assume as a Harvard professor, you don't really want to get into. It's true. Um, I, I worried a little bit about it, uh, but so far, there hasn't been a lot of trouble. Well, you um, come on my show now, Martin. We'll get you in some trouble. <laughs> Very good. But you're right. I, in part, the book is born out of what you just talked about, uh, namely that when be when you Google the word culture today, you're more likely to get phrases like culture wars, cultural appropriation, uh, cancel culture phrases that indicate that we are at a moment where we fight very, very heatedly 
about culture and what it is and who owns what and who has a right to it. And in some ways, I actually didn't want to start by taking a position. I wanted to take a step back and say, okay, this debate is very much of our moment. But what happens when you take sort of the long historical view? What is culture? I realized I hadn't really asked myself that. And, and how does culture work? How has it worked? Not just in the last 10, 15 years, but in the last 10,000 years or, or even longer. So that, that was sort of the initial impulse, not to stake out a position, but to take a step back and, and sort of gain some historical perspective on these very urgent, but also heated debates. Uh, Martin, you were on the show last year talking about another book um, on the environment, which you wrote, uh, Literature for a Changing Planet. You seem to have done what most academics have failed to do, which is remain a generalist, a public intellectual. I'm not very keen on that term, but it describes you. How, how have you done that? And is one of the reasons why we've become so imprisoned by these very na narrow definitions of culture, because as Weber warned us at the end of the Protestant ethic, uh, we're imprisoned by our specializations. I think that's right. Um, I mean, I once, once upon a time, I had a specialization, mostly modernism. And, you know, I, that's what got me interested in culture. I love these sort of formal experiments, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, these kinds of figures. But then sort of almost by chance, I sort of stumbled into the job at, of becoming the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature. And so I had to spend a couple of years reading extremely widely and working with lots of specialists in different areas. And sort of for the first time in the process of editing that enormous anthology, you know, which is mostly used in high schools and colleges, um, I just realized how narrow my specialization had been. I realized that some of the fundamental questions you only, only come into view when you, uh, when you think about large timescales. And so I, that, that's really what got me sort of out of my specialization. And work, of course, it means that you have to work with specialists. You sort of assemb assemble more specialized research. But by assembling it and by trying to piece together the bigger picture, you also suddenly start to see things that, that the specialists hadn't. And so I think that's, it was sort of that moment, that recognition that made me think, oh, there's some value in in, in roaming widely. The other personal thing is that it's just so much fun. I mean, the learning curve is so steep. You discover so much. And so there's also sort of a per piece of personal pleasure involved. Lionel Shriver got herself into trouble. She argued, and this comes back to the, uh, the Roth correlates theme of who has the right. She argues, uh, the Anglo-American novelist, that she has a right to write in anyone's voice to appropriate anyone she chooses as a novelist. Do you, do you agree with her? I mean, I think that the proof is in a sense in the pudding. And I think what people who argue against cultural appropriation or raise flags around it want to avoid is something that I endorse, namely superficial, disrespectful uses or or sort of exploit crass, commercially exploitative uses of other cultures, especially minority cultures, especially groups that have very little political or economic power and who 
sort of for whom culture is sort of what they have and what defines them. And I understand that you need to be careful around that and that you... that so, so hold on, Martin, I'm jumping in here because I'm wondering whether you're, you're on rather thin ice there. You're suggesting that some people have more right to culture if they're poorer, if they're more exploited? I think that I would say that when it comes right, to, to their culture, own cultures or at least their own sense of their own culture. Yeah. So I think that I what the way the position I've come away from this kind of deep dive into history is that you make cultures your own. You don't sort of automatically just because we are born a certain person automatically have that culture. That for me is a much too simplistic understanding of culture. So I think that we we make cultures our own, and that can mean by living in a certain community, but it can also mean by immersing yourself in other cultures. And, and that's what I've seen, that's what I see happens over and over again in cultural history. So it's not so much saying, I am this one culture, you are this other one culture, and, you know, hands off. I think it's a mistake to think like that. I think we make cultures our own. And what does that mean? It means we don't just swoop in and grab something and, and you know, make fun of a culture. Um, I would say that that's superficial and bad. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, you know, it should be outlawed, but it, that doesn't make for a productive use of culture. But if someone really immerses him or herself in a particular culture and spends time with it and makes it his or her own, then I think through that work, through that immersion, through that interest, you, you, have, you should have a right to do that. No one should say, hands off, just because you weren't born into a certain culture. Um, you can't do that. And just the last thing I'll say about it is, the, the, what does it mean to say a culture? And that, for me, was the other takeaway right. point. You look at any culture and you scratch the surface, you realize that it's made of bits and pieces of other cultures. And it's always been thus. And that's why I think this idea of a simple culture, you have one culture, someone has one a other culture, is restrictive. And it's just historically wrong. That's not how cultures work. Are you a, a, a syncretist? Is, if there is a philosophy at the heart of the book, um, is it a, a kind of syncretism, Martin? I, I suppose it is. I mean, they're they're prettier words, but if you put a if you want to put a it's label, it's not such on, a bad word. There are worse oh, words. Okay, if you say so. Uh, I suppose there are worse words. No, I I think it's true, um, and it's it's interesting. Syncretism. When is that? When that term is used, the term isn't used to usually to describe, let's say, Roman culture or or Western culture. Uh, it's often used to describe cultures in a colonial context that that have combined pieces of other cultures but i think deep down you look at you know i have a chapter in the book about an indian statue in rome that was found in pompeii so all of all cultures are syncretistic in in in, in the end that's how cultures evolve that's how cultures survive by importing other elements of culture and by letting themselves be imported or exported however you want to put it by letting themselves, by influencing other cultures. I wonder if there's also paradoxes at the heart of culture. It seems to me in America, for example, the Europeans showed up, they destroyed the indigenous cultures, mostly murdering them or 
simply ignoring and covering them over. And now we're rediscovering them, we being uh, Americans, particularly progressive Americans, we're rediscovering them and embracing them. Is there an ironic, a paradoxical quality to culture? As soon as we destroy something, whether on purpose or by accident, we then go on to embrace it and incorporate it into our own culture? I think that does sometimes happen. I think you're right in a way that if you destroy the political force of a culture, it's no longer threatening, perhaps, and then you can sort of allow yourself to celebrate it in, 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 in a weird way. But for me, that's only one of so many different ways in which culture syncretize, to use your term. You know, sometimes it's a dominant culture that imposes its culture onto a defeated foe. Sometimes it's a dominant culture that uses the culture of a defeated foe, as, for example, Rome did with, uh, with Greece. So, so, so I think there is sort of a huge political spectrum of the way in which cultures interact, and it's not always pretty. It's often imbued with violence and so on and so forth. Um, and, um, but that's, you know, so there, there are a million ways in which these kinds of interactions work. But the kind of rediscovery that you, uh, Andrew, that you're talking about, that's something that also happens all the time because, you know, certain cultural forms, they get lost because cultures move away, sometimes out of sheer deliberate destruction. You're absolutely right in the case of the Americas. But in other cases, because, I don't know, a new writing script gets introduced or new architectural forms. So an earlier cultural form gets sort of abandoned and neglected. And then sometimes a few generations later, sometimes hundreds of years later, it gets rediscovered. And these kind of, this rediscovery of a sort of half forgotten and often misunderstood past, it's, it's another one of these dynamics that I found, again, taking sort of the long view, is something that happens over and over again. So the particular form that you describe is perhaps ironic or in some sense paradoxical, um, but the sheer act of revival to revive something that's become almost extinct, um, that happens all the time. Is there a, a and, and again, I use this word carefully in a, in, a, in a metaphorical sense rather than a scientific one, is there a Darwinian component to culture. I was just in London last week. I went to the Royal Academy. There was an excellent exhibition of Spanish cultures, so to speak, uh, not just in Spain, but in Latin America or Spanish America, the America that the Spanish uh, colonialists uh, settled. Um, aren't successful cultures by definition colonialists, Martin? I, I don't think so, though I, lo I'm, I love that you mentioned the show because I was in London last week also and saw it. Oh, I may have bumped into you. What did you think of it? I thought it was amazing, and especially that room, that one room with the, with the maps. With the, the, yeah, know, both, they were incredible. Both the colonial maps and maps that represented uh, indigenous worldviews. I thought that was a fascinating room. Uh, um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was great. And so, you know, I think, especially in the Americas, the, it's a very clear case of one culture, mostly the Spanish culture, uh, you know, coming and deliberately destroying uh, um, Aztec and Mayan cultures and burning, burning books and, and, and so on and so forth. That, 
that's sort of an extreme. I, I would say that's sort of on one end of the of, of the spectrum. And you could definitely say here a culture was imposed onto an entire continent, you know, at gunpoint. But that's um, that's not always the case. So you know, I mentioned a moment ago Greece and Rome. So Rome had defeated Greece in battle. Greek what be, had had no longer had military uh, uh, importance, uh, um, and and yet it was able to to you know in an incredibly elaborate way influence Roman culture. Or you could flip around. The Rome decides to basically graft a lot of Greek culture onto its own tradition. So here it was right, not uh, the the. The Socratic and Platonic traditions, which you write about in the book. The Socratic and the Platonic right, and, and traditions. And even on this Wikipedia entry for, um, for Plato, the, the, uh, the image is a Roman copy of a, of a portrait of uh, Plato, which is particularly ironic, I guess. It, it, it is. But it's also, in some sense, appropriate because you can see that you know, part of the, the, the influence of Greek philosophy was through intermediaries by letting themselves or by encouraging themselves to be borrowed by Romans. But also I have a chapter in the book about the translation of Greek philosophy into Arabic in Baghdad and in the House of Wisdom. And this was, uh, the, those were the best scholars uh, and, and heirs of Greek uh, philosophy at the time when the Roman Empire had fallen into disarray. And when Greek and Ro uh, Greek thought had more or less disappeared from Europe, so uh, an important episode that's all, that also sometimes gets short shrift, and that was really fascinating to to discover. Martin, you're talking to me from M Munich, the on the edge of East, uh, the western edge of uh, East Central Europe. Uh, the great man of East Central Europe, in my view, or one of the greatest men. There are many great men, great writers, great thinkers. Is Ernest Gellner. He wrote perhaps the best book on culture or political culture, nations and nationalism. I'm sure you're familiar with his argument, which suggests that from the 19th century onwards, um, unfortunately, we tried to merge culture and politics and the state. Are you in Gellner's camp when it comes to nationalism and the problems with the plasticity and the dishonesty, the invention of the nation state and culture? I, I think I, I am. I think what national traditions, and I think in a way this comes back to our first uh, conversation, it's all selective. It's cherry picking moments of culture, moments of history, and then saying, oh, this is a national history. And, and I understand to some extent nations need some kind of cohesive story uh, but it's it's always very selective, and one always should be suspicious and try to make those national stories more porous. You know, at least get them to acknowledge that they are themselves combined of elements of other cultures. That that to to tell sort of one story is is so extremely selective. Um, and you know, we're, I I'm sitting not too far from. The border of Ukraine. There are lots of Ukrainians in Munich, and if you arrive at the train station, um, there are signs in Ukrainian. Um, and so you, you, you. It's interesting to watch this. You, you, on the one hand, we see the birth of Ukrainian nationalism, 
We see it being confronted with Ra Russian nationalism, a very particular story of what it means to be Russian. So it, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I feel like right now sitting in Munich, I'm sort of surrounded by this kind of storytelling. Yeah, I wish uh, Ernest Gellner was around. He was a remarkable man. Uh, and, and I don't suppose your book will be very popular, certainly amongst the authorities in Hungary or Poland or, or, or Russia. What do you make of the, I don't know if it's the rebirth, but the increasing centrality of cultural authoritarianism in, in, in Hungary and Poland and Russia and Turkey and India and Brazil and the United States? Yeah, it's... It's, it's really worrisome, but we, you know, we have been there before. And so it's, it's the strange, it feels like a return to an- Is it a return? I mean, you're talking to me from Munich. I'm not gonna bring up the, the H word, Martin, but we all know what we're talking about here. Yeah. Is it really a return though? Isn't that slightly too easy? I, I, I mean, it's not a return in every way, but in the kind of, from the cultural perspective, it does feel very much like, you know, I was just in, in India two months ago um, for the launch of the Indian edition at the Jaipur Festival. And there, mm. this, this is what everyone was talking about, um, the, the way in which a Hindu story gets launched and, and uh, uh, all other stories, uh, especially the Muslim part of, of the subcontinent's history gets left out. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it takes different forms, but I think there's definitely, um, you know, the, the narrowing, the exclusion, the scapegoating, um, it, it, it certainly rhymes. Who was the great prophet of all this? I, I tend to think it was Nietzsche, I think he's misunderstood as some sort of proto-fascist. And his association of of, of culture of, of the embrace of culture and what he called slave mentality. Do you think Nietzsche was a, was a prophet of the cult of culture, if you like, in in twentieth and twenty first century uh, world? You know, maybe to some extent. I have to think more about it. I mean, he um, was certainly very critical of German cultural nationalism, which was very strong in Germany in the 19th century. because Particularly Germany, provincialism. I mean, he, he loathed any kind of provincialism. Exactly. Um, and because Germany, you know, until 1870 was not a unified nation state, there was very much a, the, the, the unific, German unification grew out of a cultural nationalism uh, that started in the early 19th century and then finally in, you know, sort of in 1870 came to fruition. So this is something that Nietzsche observed and was extremely critical of. Um, yeah. Is there a, a dark side to syncretism? You know, when we wander around airports, when we go to shopping malls, when we hear the kind of music piped uh, into airports, when we read airline magazines, they all seem horribly syncretic i mean not, not all cultural syncretism is good martin is it i i think that's right and you know because it's sort of a pro-syncretistic book it's good to remind myself that that's the case though 
you know, I will say, I, I don't know whether you would agree, but the quality of books available in bookstores has, I think, gone up in the last 20 years. Um, uh, I think sometimes I'm actually surprised by what's available in airport bookstores. Uh, you know, not all. But, but I, I, no, I didn't mean airport bookstores. I meant airline magazines, the, these attempts to bring together all these different cultures. One, yeah. you know, uh, two pages on three days in Baghdad or Belgrade yeah. or, or Bangkok and then, uh, and then yeah. a piece about some sort of uh, food. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's your, what, I mean, there are, of course, particularly on the left, cultural critics of, of globalization, which is often associated with neoliberalism. Are you, in your own way, even as a syncretist, ambivalent about globalization? I think that, you know, I'm ambivalent about certain forms of globalization. I just, for me, when I, when, or when you call me a syncretist, I think it's because I recognize that borrowing from other cultures is one of the, you know, engines of cultural development. To sh so shutting it down and legislating and saying, this is superficial, this is not superficial. It's just very hard. It's very hard to know where to draw the line. But having said that, you know, I think it critics, critics, one critique of cultural globalization is this fear that everything becomes homogenous and the airport bookstore and the airport magazine are then sometimes seen as sort of shortcuts to that. And of course, we, you know, that, that does exist. There is a certain, you know, certain hotel chains and you enter and they look the same in all these countries and so on and so forth. But I think in the end, human, humans are very creative. There are a lot of humans around right now. I, I don't think that somehow that because of globalization, we are moving to some kind of homogenization where everything becomes the same. I just don't see that. And I don't think that ultimately is a worry. When I worry about globalization, I worry more about not so much the cultural forms, but the economic forms and, 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 and that kind of thing. And I think that's much more legitimate to me to my, to my mind, to, to worry about that. Martin, your book, the subtitle is The Story of Culture, The Story of Us from Cave Art to K-Pop. It seems to me as if K-Pop, if there's one example of a modern culture which really manifests your argument, it's K-Pop. Tell me a little bit about that and why you, in the subtitle, uh, you, you included K-Pop. Well, uh, the, the truth is that my publisher really wanted to include it in the in the subtitle no, they wanted a korean translation i'm guessing uh, i and they got one um so uh but as you say it seemed like uh it it is a perfect example i you know i'm i'm too old to have grown up with k-pop really um but you You're know not my... that old are you <laughs> in any case i didn't grow up with k-pop no, i'm teasing but, you martin um, you're um, allowed to listen to k-pop even i'm allowed to listen to k-pop absolutely we, we should be allowed uh but i i you know i mentioned this anecdote in the book where actually i was staying with uh, with um norwegian friends and the youngest son was like was 11 and you know teenagers don't like to get up early but i i appear for breakfast and he has gotten gotten up early, like an hour early, and he's sitting there with a Korean textbook and he's teaching himself Korean because he's into K-pop. And that, 
sort of that anecdote, that moment really stayed with me. And I thought, you know, I can, whatever I might think about the, I don't know, artistic merits of this or that K-pop uh, song, um, that moment where this, you know, 11 or 12 year old boy is spending incredibly, incredible energy and discipline learning Korean, uh, making it, you know, K-pop and that's itself syncretic culture his own in some sense was just a, a great moment. And I think that sort of got me thinking about K-pop. Martin, are there some cultural forms which are more suited to your syncretist argument than others? I've just been re-watching Ken Burns' series on jazz. Seems to me to epitomize your argument. I also saw a magnificent film. I'm not sure if you've seen it, a 2021 movie called Memoria, made by a Thai director set in Bolivia, and it's a film about culture. Uh, it's a it's it's a really intriguing, profound film. Uh, cinema itself is, of course, profoundly plastic, syncretic too. Should we? Could we create hierarchies in culture? Some are, some some forms are more syncretic than others, or or, or is that unfair? Um, I would say that the syncretism probably manifests itself differently. So I haven't seen Memoria, but thanks for you the should see it. I think you'd find it particularly intriguing because it's in its own way um, a critique, but a very interesting critique of globalization, and mm -hmm. it really focuses on your idea of culture. Yeah, well, that that's great. So I. To the extent that my argument is sort of, and I wouldn't quite put it that way, but if, if you held a gun to my head, I guess I might, as a kind of pro-cultural appropriation argument, I would say the hardest art, the, it's hardest to make that argument when it comes to like unique objects, especially objects that are in Western museums, like these Benin statues from Nigeria. And, you know, I, I understand why people make cultural ownership arguments to get museums to return these objects. And I, I'm, I, I understand that, and I'm for that on, on, on some level. You though mean I the Elgin's marble argument? Well, in, in a way, yes. Um, though I think the idea, the ideal shouldn't be that everything just goes back to where it came from. I think we need more circulation, but perhaps better and more just forms of circulation. But so to come back to this, the different art forms, it's in some sense easier to make the pro-cultural appropriation argument with more immaterial art forms because there mm. it's not about this, you know, who owns this one object or that one group of objects. So, you know, music or the performing arts or dance, it's, it's, um, it, it's easier because you don't have to adjudicate the, the actual ownership of objects. Um, but I do, I do think that in terms of the level of syncretism, I just think it's syncretism all the way down. So I, I don't think ultimately you can say, oh, you know, this is just 20% syncretistic and the other one is 80%. I, I, I wouldn't know even how to assign these kinds of numbers to particular art forms. Martin, let's end with the obsession now in Silicon Valley where I am, um, chat GPT. Um, technology which creates uh, machines which create culture in a way that we've never as humans created it before what are you 
make more broadly of AI in the context of your book on culture? Is it just the next chapter or is it a new book, a new moment in the history of our species? You know, I, I change my mind about that about every five minutes. It's fascinating because sometimes I feel like that it's precisely what my book is, sort of a celebration of human creativity. And, and that's precisely what distinguishes us from AI. But then I have to recognize that my book is also about uh, a history of tools and technologies to make art in different ways. And as you say, an extreme form of borrowing. And ultimately, this is what AI is. It's another tool that's, you know, that's vacuuming up extremely huge numbers of artworks and expressions and so on and so forth. So sometimes I think that's, you know, it, it's not so different. And, and I, it's going to be interesting. I can't, I, I literally, I change my mind all the time.